0: Just as you're opening your Bibles, please open them to John chapter 10. Um, I would want to read to you from Exodus 20 in just a couple of verses, and then we'll read John 10. But in Exodus 20, the giving of the Ten Commandments, and it says, um, God says, says, and God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then in the, the Eighth Commandment, which comes in verse 15, again a very short one, you shall not steal. And I want to read to you from John 10 um, as well. John 10, 1, 2, 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Really, this is the essence of what it means to be a Christian, is that you know the voice of Jesus. It resonates with you, and you sense that he is the Lord and Master that he claims to be, and you want to follow him. People who don't want to follow Jesus don't hear his voice, don't sense that his voice is real, that it speaks to their heart. And that's a question for you, really, if you're not a Christian. Do you hear his voice? Have you heard his voice? He says a stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him. For they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech about the sheepfold Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So again Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and will go in and out and find pasture Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. <clears throat> well, I want to speak to you on the, on the theme of um, this eighth commandment that we're called to, to not steal. Um, probably about fifteen, no, 14 or so years ago, um, when I was in my very early 20s, I experienced um, being mugged in London. I don't know if it's happened to any of you. Um, it does happen from time to time. And uh, the, the story was that I was with a friend of mine me and Rich were at another friend's down in Peckham, and uh, we'd, we, were ha- we had a nice dinner. We enjoyed the evening. I'd recently uh, had my head shaved, very close crop. I mean, that's how you guys are used to seeing me these days. But back then, it was an unusual thing, and I thought I looked hard. Um, and we were joking that evening. Uh, she said, our friend said to us, you know, take care when you go home. And we we're like, well, no one's going to touch us. Look at us. We would both looking pretty mean but I was scrawny and you know I wasn't mean I didn't have a beard either so um, a very unthreatening looking guy and um, we entered the subway under the station on our way in and uh, two guys were under there and they were obviously high and probably drunk as well and one of them pinned me up against the wall and um, he said to me and his exact line was give me a pound or I'll bust a bust your jaw and uh, I only thought for a second and thought that was a good deal i I'll give a pound. That's, that seems very reasonable to me. So, um, so I reached for my wallet, handed over my wallet, and well, I didn't hand over my wallet. He grabbed it off me and ran off. Um, there were a number of other things that happened that night, and you know there was a little bit of violence from the other guy, um, a random third party involved as well, and it all got a, I, you know, it all got a bit messy in the end. But as it as it happened, these men were captured on CCTV, and the policeman told me that. They had mug shots of the guys that their mothers would be proud of, um, and so they they found these guys, they arrested them. We went to court, and before we even had the opportunity to enter the tr- enter the courtroom, they had to plead guilty because the police obviously just laid out before them and said, "Look, here's here's you on camera. Here's what you're doing." Um, and so we think about stealing. We tend to think about stealing in, in the most extreme, sort of low life kind of ways, don't we? Of the the uh, the ugliest the ugliest stuff that's going on in society. And so I think probably your temptation right at the outset is to potentially to dismiss the subject. And I want to offer you a couple of provocative thoughts before we get into this. The first is that you've got to remember that stealing was the very first sin that was ever committed in the world. When Adam and Eve took the fruit that God had forbidden, they were stealing. And the reason that matters is because it means that stealing is in, in all of our hearts. The desire to take what's not ours, the desire to take what God has forbidden. And in fact, you can go further and say that most of the sins that we commit, maybe all of them, can be understood through this lens of stealing, that we're taking what's not ours. So last week we were talking about um, the issue of sex outside of marriage, something which God has forbidden. And to take is to steal, to steal something which God has not allowed you to have. It's a form of stealing, isn't it? You think about the hunger for glory, the hunger for praise, the hunger for admiration, as another example. It's a sin, it's rooted in pride, but really it's a form of stealing because you want the glory which belongs to the living God alone. And that's something we all share, right? We all have that tendency, that temptation in our hearts. And there are many, many ways we could take that Stealing is the first sin, it's in, when, in many ways, a kind of a root sin that is in all of our hearts and, and it's there, right in, underneath the surface. Here's another provocative thought for you. I think many of us would steal if given the opportunity. Back in the late 90s, just when the internet was becoming uh, ubiquitous and every home was uh, getting access to being online, a piece of software was released called Napster, And uh, there's a few older folk in the room. OK, so Napster Napster was extraordinary. Napster gave you access to any music you wanted. Because all you had to do was type in the track names in Coldplay Parachutes. And immediately, you'd come up with a list of other people who had this file, the MP3 file on their computers. And you could select the best connection and start to download the thing. Now, it would take about half an hour or more to download a single track. And you'd have to hope that it wasn't interrupted partway through or The other person didn't log off. And uh, in the end, it would take you hours and hours to download a single album. But in the end, you could have what you wanted, which was music. And the thing about Napster was that it was legal at the time. There were no real laws around digital transfer, peer-to-peer transfer of files. So we all rationalized as teenagers. We thought, well, if it's legal, then why can't I do it? But of course, things that are legal are not always right. and They're certainly not righteous, are they? And this is why I put it to you, I think any of us could steal, given the right, the right opportunities. Back in 2009, it seems amazing that it's so long ago, um, the expensive scandal broke, was broken wide open by the Telegraph newspaper. And uh, the extraordinary thing about it was that this was men and women at the heart of our government who were, in, in many ways, standing up as representatives of the people, who have chosen to live lives serving a public service to the people, and yet they were robbing from the people because the expenses that they were claiming were ridiculous. And in fact, they were stealing. It was a form of stealing. It may have been legal. There may have been loopholes. There may have been allowances. But effectively, they were milking the system for personal gain. And one of the kind of poster examples of this was that there was a man, um, a knight actually, a sir, who um, on his... On his property had a moat or a lake or something like that. So obviously somebody fairly well-to-do, but who billed the taxpayer to pay for the floating duck house which was on his property at the price of something like 1,600 pounds. And it was just one example of the hundreds and thousands of abuses that had taken place over the years and that were, were blowing wide open. And the thing that it really brought home was that in any context, even the, the most... Servant-hearted of, of, of us, even those who have, who have ostensibly living our lives as as, as an act of, of service towards others, can actually end up stealing from from others, uh, when personal gain trumps um, any sense of of uh, conscience or obligation or these things. And um, so, never never think that you are beyond this, which you may have assumed. I, I don't believe that at all. I know it because the church pens disappear every single week, and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I know, I'm looking at you. Um, So, the command, do not steal, you shall not steal. The way I want to consider it is that in a sense, even though it's a a very short, sharp command, and uh, you might think there's not much to this, the way I understand so many of these commands is that they're like windows separating two worlds. Uh, From the one side, we look through the window, through the pane of glass, through the command, and we see the bleakness of the world that the negative side of what that command is is outlawing, is saying is wrong. And I'm going to consider the negative side first. And then you take the opposite stance and you look through the window pane the other way and you think, these commands aren't meant to only be taken negatively. They're meant to be a direction and a force for us to think about what the righteous life looks like. And so we consider it positively and we think, well, what's the opposite of stealing? And this is roughly where I want to go this evening and think about it in those two ways. First of all then, thinking about the negative perspective. Why does the Bible say that to steal is wrong. And I think before we answer that, I just need to, to make it clear that I think, in a sense, you need to acknowledge that if you don't believe in God, it's very hard for you to affirm that that is true. And I don't mean, please don't mishear me, I don't mean that people who don't believe in God are thieves and people who do believe in God are not. I don't think those two things follow. But what I do mean is that if you believe that this is a universe which was not designed by anybody, but is is merely an accident, and that life is accidental, then it's impossible for you to hold the view that there are morally objective realities. There's no moral lawgiver to give them. And I've said this a number of times when we've been going through these commands, but I think it bears repeating. The reason why that's such an important thing to say is because if you feel in your gut that stealing is wrong. You have that moral intuition and you, you resonate with the truthfulness of that. It is wrong to take something that is not yours. Then you are implicitly saying that there is a God, that there is somebody who defines right and wrong, that there is righteousness and evil in this universe, and that it is not just a sensation that I have that's been built into me through millennia of evolution or whatever you, however you want to explain it, but that it is a real thing, that evil is wrong. And I ought to provoke you to think about this. Now, I just wanted to say that as an aside, because I want to come back to this question. When God came in and he said, listen, here in my top ten commands, you shall not steal, exists right up there, that's one of the most important things that God wanted to say to us. What is it that he was enforcing? Why is stealing wrong? I want to give you a few reasons for that. Thinking of through the bleak world beyond this command. Now, this is my first reason. I think he's saying that stealing is wrong because it opens the windows and the doors to chaos and destruction in the world. This takes a bit of explaining. If you think about it, most of what we... The order and beauty and flourishing that we experience in life is because of this phenomenon of ownership. The ownership leads to human flourishing. That When people can say, this is my plot and I tend to it, it leads to wonderful human flourishing. This is true of every aspect of your life. Think, for example, about the flats that you go into in London. Sometimes you have the opportunity to go to a home which is owned by homeowners. And sometimes you go to homes which are are not owned and are rather rented. And not all the time, but many times you can tell the difference in how the two properties are tended to and cared for. So you walk into the one home where people are homeowners and you think everything about it is pristine and there's care. They ask you to take off your shoes as you enter onto the fluffy carpet that massages your feet as you walk in. And there's beautiful lighting and everything's freshly decorated and there's wonderful aromas and all the rest of it. Of course, I'm talking in extremes here. It's not necessarily true of every home. But anyway, you go go into other homes in London where they're rented. And what is often the case is that there's very little care, especially if the flatmates are randomly put together. They found each other online and there's no sort of sense of ownership in the house of who owns what and uh, your feet stick to the floor as you walk down the the, the corridor and then you see this black mold growing in the corner of the room and mushrooms under the bed. And, um, honestly, I mean, when we, when we, before we got the place that we live in now, which we, we actually bought five and a half years ago, when we came in, the place was filthy, disgusting. There were 15 beds in, in, in the home because it was some kind of squat, and uh, on it, it was like the worst example of what happens when no one owns a place and no one takes ownership and cares. Now I'm trying to paint for you a picture in extremes. I know some of you you care about the places you live in, I get that um, Another example, think about the fridge at work versus the fridge at home. The fridge at work is a bleak place, isn't it? It's empty, apart from a little bit of sour milk or maybe some leftover yogurt that someone had for their lunch or something like that. And the fridge at home is full of potential and creative um, so it speaks to you as it calls out all the meals that could be made with the, the, the condiments and the, the various jars of things in there. And the difference, of course, is ownership. That, there is the, that ownership allows human flourishing because people care about the things that they own and it gives them opportunity to express themselves. And this is, this is actually a principle that's laid right into creation. It's laid right into the way God made the world. But the first thing he did when he made Adam and Eve in the garden was that he gave them, a, he gave them boundaries to where their command and dominion was to lie. So the ownership lay, lies right at the bottom of what it means to live a meaningful life. That God has given you certain things to tend to. Because ownership then leads to the opportunity for work, for tending the garden or for sowing seed in the field, or whatever it is you have, which then leads to reward, where you reap the benefits of the things that you own, which then leads to the compound effect of being able to own more in the end, so that you can tend to more as your responsibility and stature in the world grows. And this is wired right into the way God has built his universe. It's not an unimportant thing. And the flip side to it, of course, is in societies where ownership is is destroyed, you end up with mass corruption, and you also end up with dreary um, depressing drabness. So you think about some of the extreme examples of communism we saw in the last century where ownership became, uh, it was taken away and passed to the state. What you ended up with was societies where there was just grey, drab sameness everywhere because humans don't flourish in a context where they can't tend to things and reap the reward of their labor. It was obvious to me when we visited the Deutsche Democratic Republic Museum in Berlin which tells the story of East, East Germany and, and the way everyone drove the same treby cars and they all went on the same holidays and it was all very kind of same because human flourishing doesn't happen in an environment where there isn't ownership. And so here you see where God wanted to lay it right into the foundation of a society that he's building that in order to flourish and to express all that we're meant to be under God, we have to respect ownership. And that stealing comes in and begins to disintegrate society. It begins to dissolve the flourishing of what it means to live together in, in harmony and allowing one another to, to flourish. And this is obvious to me. Um, one example that happened in, in my experience is we, we took away a bunch of people on a weekend away um, in our old church many years ago. And during the course of that weekend, one of the girls had left her, her iPhone on the bed in her room The only people in this venue where we're staying with were the church people that we'd taken with us. Sunday morning, uh, this girl came to me and said, my phone has been taken, it's disappeared. And uh, she was okay about it. She wasn't like massively upset or anything, but she just told me. And of course, as a pastor, I felt a massive responsibility to to talk to the whole group. And I I opened up the scriptures and I pled with them for um, the person to come and talk to me and to, to get right with God about this. But the thing that was interesting about it was that it began to dissolve, disintegrate some relationships in a certain way, where there was suspicion or where there was mistrust. And some things were never fully healed as a result of that experience. And you think, this is what happens when, when, when the door is open to sin. sin. Sin reaps destruction, doesn't it? It breaks down our love and, and respect for one another. It starts to dissolve society and, 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 and break down our, our, our relationships. So there's one way you look at it through the window in the bleak world. Stealing brings chaos and destruction. Here's another way you can think about it. Stealing reveals the host of other sins that are already lurking in the bottom of your heart. Now, here's what I mean. When Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount, he showed us that there are sins that are at the surface and that there are root sins which feed them. Fruits and roots. So, for example, you think about Self-indulgence is a sin. What's the root that usually lies behind that? And it's usually self-pity. But when you start to indulge self-pity and feeling sorry for yourself, very often it leads to this other f- fruit in your life of indulgence and trying to comfort yourself. Or we talked last week about adultery as a fruit. and Underneath there's, there's lust, isn't there, that, that grows under the surface and eventually may express itself in adultery, but doesn't always. And the sin under the surface, the root sin, is still real. It's still there, it's present, very much seen by God. The same can be true of violence and anger as a root sin. So when you think about the sin of stealing, that's a surface thing, it's a it's a fruit. But underneath it lie all kinds of roots and tendrils that feed that. Things like envy of another person, what they have that you don't. Things like discontentment with what God has given you. Or things like malice where you just want to harm somebody. There are all kinds of things that feed that. And I think one of the reasons why God outlaws stealing is because he knows that right under the surface in the human heart, there is a world of evil just barely suppressed by commands like this one. Maybe we can not steal, but it's much harder to uproot the evil from deep inside our hearts, isn't it? Much harder. And here's another reason, a final reason why I think stealing is wrong. I think this is really the fundamental one, actually. Stealing is wrong because it's really a statement that God isn't good and that he doesn't care for you. In fact, that's the fundamental reason why you do everything that is sinful. Every sin you do, think about the most habitual things that you do that are wrong. They are always fed by the underlying belief that the living God is not giving you the things that you need for your joy and happiness in life. It was true of the first sin. It was true when Adam and Eve were deceived by the serpent and told if you just, just reach out and take the fruit. God, he said, effectively, he said, God is withholding from you. You'll be like God, he said. And they began to believe that lie. If I could have that thing, I would be happy. And so you stop trusting God and you start taking things out of, your, out of turn. And that's how sin works. It's true of every sin that we ever do. It's, it's, it's grasping at things, which in the belief that God is withholding good from us. And this is never more obvious than when it comes to, to stealing and the temptation to steal. Because the Bible teaches us that God is sovereignly put within our, within our lives the things that we have. He says in, in Acts 17, Paul's preaching, he says that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined, there's a crucial word, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. And what the Bible's telling us is that the Lord God, he knew you before you were made, and he knew exactly where you would be, the opportunities you'd have, and the things that you would own. And he sovereignly ordained these things. Of course, the minute that you become discontent with what is your lot or what God has determined for you is when you begin to want to grasp outside of his will. Now, that's true not only in the more obvious desire to take possessions or material goods that aren't yours, which is the most obvious form of stealing. But it's true in other ways as well. Think about, for example, selfish ambition. And the desire for self-promotion in life, what's that rooted in? It's rooted in the belief that God will not put you where he wants you or is somehow going to overlook you. And the Bible says that promotion doesn't come from the East or the West. It says it comes from the Lord. And you can see this. If you read the Bible, you know the stories. You know how God can take somebody from a slave, from slavery or from prison and put them into leadership if he wants to. He can do it like that. But when we begin to nurture self-aggrandizing ambitions and schemes and methods of pushing ourselves ahead, rooted as it is in a distrust in the living God, we begin to steal what is not ours by right, or what is not given to us by God. Can you see the connection? Here's another example. Some of us if you're younger, you may still be to some degree reliant on your parents for financial help or support now and then. And really, that's something that can be easily abused, and it begins with a mistrust that God is your provider, that God cares for you, and the way it begins to to come out of sin is when you start to manipulate people in your life who could give you more or could provide for you more generously. It starts as a mistrust in the living God, and then it works its way out into, effectively, again, another form of stealing. If I manipulate, if I use sin to control the people around me, then they will meet my physical needs. But of course, it's entirely wrong. It's entirely sinful. So we're seeing how through that pane of glass, as it were, do not steal. There's a world of evil and destruction, disharmony, and disintegration of life that is really hurtful and damaging. But that's only one way we need to look. I want us to now think about it through the other way. Think about it through the pane of glass, looking into what God wants of us. And really the question you want to ask is, listen, if God was against stealing, what was he for? What is the heart of of God towards us in this area of our lives? How is he calling us to live the righteous life? What does it mean to please God with the life that he's given you in this area? And, And here's how I want to sum it up for you in a nutshell. I think that the answer to that question is that God has put you on this earth to be a steward of whatever he's put within your sphere of responsibility, but to steward it for him. I think that's the biblical teaching on this issue. And that applies to everything about your life. Remember the Acts passage says that God has determined and allotted periods for you to live. So it applies to your time. It applies to not only the moments of every day, but the entirety of the time that you get on this earth. It's given to you as a stewardship. It might be 25 years, 40 years, 75 years. Some of you may live to 100. But whatever it is, God in his sovereignty is, has given that to you to steward. What are you going to do with the time you have? He's given you Different amounts of talents and gifts. Some of you are exceptionally talented in a raw way. You have great intelligence or great skill with your hands or whatever. And others of us are less talented. And there's no, the the world's not equal in that sense. And God didn't make things equal in that sense. He gave us equal value, but he he did not give out his gifts in an equal way. Not at all. But the issue is not so much what you don't have. The issue is what you do have and what you do with it. Is what it means to be a steward, to understand that my life is owned by God and I am to handle what I have with reverence before the living God. It's your time, your talents, your opportunities. Sometimes you grow up in a family that's not well connected or in, in poverty and you don't have the opportunities that other people have. And others of us are born into places where we have opportunities, that doors open for education or advancement, all that kind of thing. Fundamental thing is to understand that God was sovereign over both those circumstances. And the only thing he requires of you is that you know how to steward your opportunities for God. So the fundamental idea, I think, that lies at the heart of what it means to live a righteous life, that this is in opposition to stealing, is that you are a steward of the things that God has put into your life and the opportunities, time, talents, resources that you have. And every one of those is finite, and for all those things, you are accountable to the living God. How are you going to live your life is the question. This was true in the very beginning when God created Adam and Eve, of course. He gave them a particular mission, didn't he? But it was reinforced by Jesus in the parable of the talents. Do you remember how he told us the story of a master going away and leaving one servant with ten talents, another servant with five talents, and another with one? And it meant a portion of material resource a talent, amount of money. In the heart of the teaching was that when Jesus leaves in your care certain opportunities, what do you do with the things that he's gifted you with? What do you do with your life? What do you do with your time and talents? That's the question, isn't it? Now, I want us to dig into this a little bit deeper. If we're called to live an accountable life before a holy God and be able to present ourselves to him in some way and, and hope that Jesus will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. What does it mean to, to live a life that's well-stewarded before God? I want to give you a few answers to that. Here's my first answer. I think that you have to learn how to work for God. What I mean by that is that the opposite in, in the Bible of, of stealing one of the opposites is, is working. Paul puts it like this. He says, let the thief no longer steal, in Ephesians 4. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now the issue, friends, when it comes to like, thinking about your life and the work that you are meant to do for God, the issue is not so much what work you're called to do, that's the millennial question, isn't it? The angst that millennials struggle with is, what should I do? What fills my passions? What energizes me when I wake up in the morning? And actually, it's, in many ways, it's an unrealistic way of approaching life or an unrealistic way of assessing your worth and what you're meant to do with life. I don't think the Bible's so much interested all the time in what we do with our time and talents and energies. It's much more interested in how we use those things, and in particular, whether you use them for God. The reason I say that is because just a little bit later in the book of Colossians, Paul's speaking to slaves. Remember, slaves have no freedom, really, over what they do with their lives. The only choice they have is how well they serve the masters that they're put under. And rather than try and tell slaves what to do, the way Paul encourages them is he says says this in in Colossians 3.23. He says, whatever you do, whatever you do, it almost doesn't matter what you do. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. So if I can summarize this for you, what it means is this. That God wants all of us to understand that with the amount of time he's given us on this earth and the opportunities and talents that we have, we are to work hard with those things. I know often the tendency in London is is to tip the other way into overwork. But don't confuse busyness with productive work for the Lord God. With working heartily for the Lord, as Paul puts it to the, the slaves in Colossians. Do you regard every moment of every day as, as, as for the Lord Jesus? That's what it means to be a steward of your time and talents. Some of the enemies of that, one of them of course is laziness, it's an obvious one. And even the most busy of us can really be masking a deep well of laziness under there, can't you? That you're just frantically rushing around because you're unable to, to deal with the real things that you need to deal with in life. And of course, another enemy of, of, of working for God is fear. This is what Jesus puts his finger on, by the way, in the parable of the talents. It's really interesting insight when you begin to meditate on what he's talking about here. And it's very releasing if you, if you grasp what he's speaking about because he says, well, you know how the, ten, the guy with 10 talents goes away and multiplies it and gets 10 talents more. And Jesus is like, well done, good and faithful servant. The guy with five does the same thing. He multiplies it. It's a compound effect. He ends up with five more. And he, they got, these guys present what they've done to the master. And here's what the guy with one talent does. And it's very interesting and insightful into human mind and psychology, actually. He comes to the master and he says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed, so I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. And so he becomes a picture of a life wasted, effectively, because fear is a paralyzing sin. And I very deliberately use the word sin there. Because very often when we think about fears that affect us, we, we think about them as something that we cannot help, that happened to us. And we think, consider ourselves as victims. But the Bible consistently speaks about fear in your life as a sin to repent of as something not to allow to take root or to control the way you live. and The trouble with fear when it comes to living your life for God is that it will rob you, it will prevent you from living a life that is fruitful in labor for the Lord Jesus Christ. Fear is paralyzing. Fear leads to you taking what God put in your hand and burying it in the ground because you're afraid of failure. You're afraid of imperfection. Whatever it is that you're afraid of. And it's so interesting how Jesus, in the story, the master says to him, you're a wicked servant. Because you allowed fear to control you. Instead of faith, trust in the living God. He's given you time. He's given you the opportunities. Now go and live for him. So to be a good steward before God, first of all, is to learn to learn to work hard with what God has given you in your control, to understand that he's entrusted you with certain things and you're meant to labor for the kingdom in wherever you are. Here's another way that we can think about what it means to be a steward, a second way. It means you learn how to lead and to take responsibility. Now, let me just put, paint for you a contrast here. Think about the thief. What does the thief do? The thief is the person who takes for selfish gain and indulgence. But in the Bible, leadership is being willing to take responsibility for others for their benefit and their their flourishing. So it's the very opposite inclination. In many ways, a thief is the antithesis of a godly leader. Living inwards, living for my own benefit, whereas a, a person who's called to leadership in the Bible is someone who's willing to lay down their life for others. One example that's been on the news recently is that of um, massively these massive companies where these executives and shareholders and uh, the boards have been taking huge bonuses and massive dividends, stripping cash out of the company to the point where the workers are often their pension pots are unsafe. There were some very famous cases been in the news recently, and. in biblical terms, that is that's stealing. That is taking for personal gain with no regard for the care of those who are under your responsibility under God. And biblical leadership is the very opposite. It is being willing to lay your life down for the, for the good of the people under your care. And one example of that that the Bible is very, very clear on and really underlines is... How Paul speaks to, to men in the church in 1 Timothy 3. He says to them, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer or elder, he desires a noble task. So he says to the, to the guys in the church, if you want to be an elder in the church of God, that's a wonderful desire, that's a great desire, and that's a wonderful task to, to decide to set your life to do. But he says a little bit later on, one of the qualifications he says is that that man must manage his own household well. Remembering, of course, that a household is an economic unit in the ancient world with employees and with resources, maybe agriculture like land that's owned or a business that's involved in the house. He must manage his own household well with all dignity and keeping his children submissive. And the logic that Paul gives us, he says, if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And what I'm trying to paint for you is a picture of the opposite of the thief. Is the godly leader. It begins, of course, with the ability how to, of leading yourself. How you take responsibility for what God has given you just in your own person. Then it grows into a slightly wider sphere of influence, which in this example is for the men who led their families. How they were called to be committed to their wife and raise their children in the faith and manage the, 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 uh, the economics of the household. Make sure that everything was tended to. Never abdicating responsibility. Never saying, making excuses for things that go wrong, but always recognizing that anything goes wrong in the household, it's my fault. I should have fixed this. Because then he says, if, those, those, if that's how you live your life, then and that's your stewardship in that area, then you're qualified to lead in the church. And so you see the pattern that runs through life. God looks at you as a steward. And he's always interested in, are you faithful with what he's put within your hands now? Because if you are, the Bible's very clear. He'll entrust you with more. He'll load you with more. If, you, if you're strong enough to carry this load, next time he'll give you twice as much. Many people run around frustrated in life that they act, they're not in positions of leadership. And the problem is that you've got to look at your own life and think, well, am I faithful with what God has given me? That's the biblical pattern. That's the biblical way of thinking of how you're to live before God. It's learning responsibility. Learning to carry a load. And here's the last thing. To be a steward before God in biblical terms is that you learn how to give. Of course, this really quite obviously sits as an opposite to stealing, doesn't it? Because it quite literally is the opposite thing. Stealing is taking. Giving is giving. In Ephesians 4, This is what Paul said, remember? He said, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now this is really where we're getting to the point where you're moving in just the opposite direction of what the command not to steal is about. We're understanding the principle in the heart of God. That God has put you on this earth as a unit with massive potential, enormous potential for good, not just to benefit yourself, but to benefit people around you. And a squandered life on these terms is a life that's just lived for selfish gain. But a life that is filled with the vision of what God wants you to be and do is a life that is overflowing with kindness and goodness towards other people. And one of the obvious ways that that's true is in generosity, generosity. Friends, don't don't miss this though. The giving in this way always begins with generosity towards God. The reason I say that is because in Malachi, in the book of Malachi, chapter three, uh, God asks this question. He says, Well, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you? He says, In your tithes and contributions says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. And what I'm trying to say to you, friends, is that you haven't really learned the purpose and heart of God for you as a steward with the opportunities, resources, time, and talents that he's given you until you learn that you are meant to be here for the benefit of others and primarily to give to God. It begins with giving to God. But then it overflows also in generosity in, towards others. The righteous life in the Bible is so often characterized by this, this accompanying generosity, this bountiful spirit. I think it needs to be said that the image of, of the Christian in the Bible, is is not a frugal person. Not a tight-fisted person. It's not somebody who is so careful with their money that they're not bountiful to people around them. That there's a lavishness that characterizes Christians, that characterizes the godly person. And I'm not talking about a lack of wisdom with the things that God has given you. Of course, it's important to be wise. But you think... The primary call of what it means to be a disciple is to imitate God, isn't it? That's the, that's the command that's repeated all the way through the, t- the New Testament. That we're meant to imitate Jesus. We're meant to imitate God. And one of the things I know about our Father in heaven is that he is lavishly generous. He is not frugal. He is kind beyond measure. The great proof of that, of course, above all, is his willingness to give us his son, Jesus. There was nothing more precious that he could have given than to give us Jesus and to allow Jesus to die on the cross for us. This is what Paul says. He says, if, if the father has not spared his only son, how much more will he give us all things? So if you have, want to have a measure of the generosity of God, think about his, his gift of his son to us. So to move in the opposite direction of the thief who is cold-hearted and closed in his selfish gain is actually to move in the, in the direction of bountiful generosity. Firstly, towards God. Be, be aware of what God says to you on that point. He says, if you, if you don't give to God, then you're robbing him. So you are a thief, he says. And that's something we've got to wrestle with. But it's not just giving to God. He wants you to be bountiful towards other people. He wants an overflow of heart in, in love and compassion for those in need. You think about someone like Job. Job has this, all this disagreement with his, his accusers about whether he'd lived a righteous life or not. But the one thing they all agree on is that he was very generous to the poor. That anyone with need who came into his sphere of influence always experienced the alleviation of that need. The same is true of Cornelius in Acts 10. Remember how this man, one of the first Gentile converts, a centurion, a soldier, a Roman probably. The thing it says about him that marked him as living a righteous life was that he feared God and that he gave alms to the poor. Gave, gave gifts to the poor. That he was generous, that he was bountiful, that his life flowed out towards others. And I think that one of the things that's so at the heart of what it means to be a Christian is that you learn not only to keep avoid to avoid the evils that, that can mark your life, like stealing. Most of us don't want to steal and are not going to steal. But really, to live a godly life is to, is to move in the opposite direction, isn't it? To understand that you you have a certain amount of stuff that God's given you in life to steward for his glory and the good of everyone around you. And that image of the righteous life, of course, you and I are always going to fall far short of it, aren't we? We are. We're never going to be able to work hard enough, take responsibility well enough, or to give enough to be, to be godly in that way. We we'll always fall short. But this is why I read to you from John 10 right at the start. Because in that passage, we have before us the contrast. On the one hand, you've you've got Satan, who Jesus says is the thief. He says the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And That's the bleakness that Satan brings into our lives. He comes in and he robs us of joy. He comes in and he robs us of our experience of contentment in God. And he separates us by tempting us with sin He comes in and he brings discord and disharmony and disintegration. He comes and does that. That's what the thief does. It's the bleak world that Satan loves and which he fosters and encourages. But Jesus holds himself up in contrast to the way Satan works. And he says of himself that I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly. If you want an image in your mind of what a stewarded life looks like for God's glory, Jesus is it. He's the righteous one. He's the shepherd. And everything that I've just described to you about what it means to live before God is true of him. He did the work that God called him to do. He said to the Father, I have done the work that you gave me to do. Jesus didn't flinch from his responsibilities in that regard. He wasn't paralyzed by fear. He was never lazy. Every day he got up, and determined to live the next day for the glory of the Father. He took responsibility as the ultimate leader. And his model of leadership is one of total self-sacrifice. To the extreme. Whereby he took the sins of the world and carried them upon his own shoulders when he went upon the cross. He became sin for us. He demonstrated for us what is what is godly leadership and stewardship there being our good shepherd who died for us on the cross. And he was generous beyond measure. He said, and he keeps repeating when he speaks about his own life, he says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from the Father. So friends, if, if nothing else, when we think about the Lord Jesus Christ, the right response to what we've been thinking about this evening is that we need to come back to him in worship and adoration. We look at our own hearts and we see all the, the root sins lying in there, the inclinations of the heart, which are ugly, aren't they? And how selfish we are. And we realize how far f- We fall short of what it means to live the righteous life, what it means to be the steward of the time and talents and resources God's given us. Because the reality is, Monday morning hits, and you don't jump out of bed ready to serve God, do you? Which of us does? We struggle, we labor, from day to day we have good moments and bad moments, and some of it's mixed together. But Jesus... But Jesus comes to us as the one who is willing to, to be our leader on our behalf, to be our steward on our behalf, to be our shepherd on our behalf, to carry our sins, to take up the uncleanness of our hearts, and then to transform us in the wake of his righteous life. So friends, I want us to respond by coming to him in repentance. Maybe if you're not a Christian, you need to, you know, that image of Jesus as the good shepherd. You need to surrender your life to him tonight. You need to say, Lord Jesus I want to be in your sheep pen, as it were. I want to be under your care. That's what it means to become a Christian. Just say, I want to surrender to you, Lord. But for the rest of us, we, there are sins we need to repent of. and There's godliness we need to pursue, but we need to do it with the sense that, that Christ is all in all. Will you bow your heads with me and let's pray together, shall we? Let's pray some prayers of surrender. Jesus, I want to... We want to acknowledge you now as... Is the only one who's really ever fulfilled the law that the Father laid down. We thank you, Lord, that your life was righteous, that it was perfect. You completed the work the Father gave you to do. You carried on your shoulders the sins of the world. And you laid down your life for us, Lord. And we, we want to bow in reverence before you, Lord Jesus. Because in our hearts, there is all kinds of ugliness. There is the inclination, the desire take what's not ours to, to mistrust you as our father all kinds of ugliness but thank you for jesus thank you that you're shaping us to become like him thank you lord that even if we failed a thousand times you want us to become more like our good shepherd to live our lives for his glory so lift us up we pray give us a bigger vision of what our lives could become under you how to use everything you've given us for your glory. Not to shy away from the hard tasks and the deep call to lay down our lives for you, Lord. And speak to those who don't know you, Lord. I pray that they'd hear your voice. In your precious name we pray, Lord. amen. Amen.